Okay, everybody expects us to have an anime podcast. Michael Peters, Justin Charity, at long last, are they podcasting once again about anime? No. I'm Justin Charity. And I'm Micah Peters. Honestly, this podcast might turn out to be like the Eddie Murphy, Martin Lawrence movie Life, except neither of us is in prison, and in fact, we're not even taping in the same location. But we will be talking a lot about the millennial life. You know, music, video games, strange stuff from the dark corners of the internet that piques our interest. People think this is going to be, oh, a little topic A, oh, what's topic B, oh, a little, you know, chit-chat. No. Every time you tune into this podcast, we are going to lock you into a room for 45 minutes, and we are going to do criticism. We are going to get to the bottom of every Scooby-Doo mystery that the discourse produces for us each week. Mark my words. Man, that was that was a lot. But anyway, we are excited about it. We are excited. We're excited. We're super excited. I'm Justin Charity. And I'm Micah Peters. And this is Sound Only. We're back on August 11th. Catch us on Spotify or wherever you get your podcast. Let's go. Welcome to Bachelor Party. I'm Juliette Littman. We today are discussing Indian matchmaking, which I would say is something of a phenomenon that um, I just, as soon as I saw it pop up on Netflix, I just knew it was going to be. And then I got so many texts about it. Seems like many people are talking about it. Many think pieces. And that is what I want to dive into today. And I am joined by Shruti Rajagopalan, who is a professor at George Mason University. Hi, Shruti. Hi, Juliet. It's so nice to be on your show. Thanks for joining me. So you wrote um, an editorial for Bloomberg.com, which is why I reached out to you. And I think that I I want to talk about a lot of things with the show, but um, one of the main conversations around it is how it plays into ideas of colorism and the caste system in India. And I'm certainly not an expert, so I'd love to understand better from you. Um, I guess I'm just curious, first of all, like what is your your academic background? Because you're a professor, I believe. Yes. So uh, I'm an economist by training. So I did my graduate work and got my PhD in economics. I taught at SUNY Purchase for many years uh, until very recently. And I just moved to the Mercatus Center at George Mason University, where I've started working on directing their India research. So I kind of look broadly at Indian political economy and write papers, books, you know, editorials like the one you read. And we have a new podcast kicking off called The Ideas of India. So that's the sort of stuff that I do. Cool. So were you excited to see the show on Netflix? Did you know it was coming? I didn't know it was coming, but as soon as it dropped, everyone went crazy. And, <laughs> you know, especially with COVID, I think people have been at home. They want new new content to watch and it's quite easy to binge with the flexi hours. Yeah. So within maybe 48 hours of the show dropping, lots of people I knew had already watched it and Twitter was buzzing with it. And I was almost dreading watching it. I was like, oh my God, there are so many polarized opinions. Do I want to watch it? Do I not want to watch it? And then eventually I I, I did watch it. Um, well, what did you think overall? And then we'll kind of dive in to the different kind of both issues and just sort of like, I think for someone like me, who's just really not that familiar with matchmaking as a, um, a cultural norm, which I think it is. And that was one of the things you explained in your piece is that this is maybe to an American audience seems abnormal or sensational, but is, is pretty common, correct? Yes. 
So the matchmaker may not be someone like Seema in the show. It might not be like a formal designated matchmaker that you pay, but there are a lot of people who take on the role of matchmakers. In every family, there is sort of like a clearing house, like mm-hmm. typically an uncle or an aunt. You know, the priests at temples perform the same function. Uh, there are a lot of people who are like members of the community who, you know, ro- run the local sort of, uh, you know, whatever is the linguistic community or the caste community, those leaders will end up being clearing houses for things like this. So matchmaking is a full-time national pastime in India. It just, people may just not get paid for it the way she does to jet set between Mumbai and the United States. Um, I'm a little embarrassed to admit this, but I would say like the idea of matchmaking being still quite common and normal really came to me from Never Have I Ever on Netflix as well. Did you watch that? I haven't yet. It's the next top thing on my list because as soon as I wrote the column for Bloomberg, everyone said you have to watch Never Have I yeah. Ever. It's really, it's really good. I think it's like definitely Mindy Kaling's best creation. And there's a plot where one of the characters is supposed to be um, getting married to someone she's been she's been set up with, but then comes to America, like gets, finds a boyfriend. It's like a side plot or whatever. But I do think that show introduced that concept. And so... Uh, you know, for me, that was kind of like, I was like, oh, I just saw a show about this. But I just think in general, like I'm so un- uneducated on on this. So I have like so many more questions for you. But I do want to know what you think overall. Did you like the show? So I found the show well made and engaging. I thought it was a very interesting twist to take like a very old Indian tradition, something that's so normal for those of us who grew up in India and convert it into a reality TV format where you sort of interview the people before and after they go on a date or, you know, sort of do the postmortem with the parents. That's very standard American television formats. I thought that was an interesting twist to it. Um, some of the things that outraged many other people, like, you know, say the lack of diversity or it was an, only a particular kind of socioeconomic class, those things didn't bother me very much. I mean, every television show is about a particular group of people and these are the characters that they they chose. I thought there was a bit of a dip in the middle episodes. It, it got yeah. a little bit repetitive. And then in the end, it picked up again with, you know, the drama over Vyasar, whether he wants to tell people about his father uh, you know, being a convicted criminal and yeah. things like, you know, then it kind of picked up. So it was, I, I thought it followed an interesting journey of, you know, good, engaging reality television for the most part. Just for like reality TV purposes, I thought it was kind of weird because they basically abandon a bunch of storylines like halfway through and just like move on to the, in, whereas in, in a lot more like standard US shows, like you will, they would compress the entire Nadia storyline into one episode or it would be the whole season. It wouldn't be like four episodes. And I will say when she kind of just like went off because she met Shaker and they were happy, I was like bummed. She was definitely my favorite part of the show. So yeah. I was sad when she left. And I will say... Renee, who allegedly ghosted her, he reached out to me and I, Renee, I will, I will respond to you, I promise. But I, he, I think has been very open about wanting to express that he thinks he got an unfair edit and says that actually she ghosted him. So there's plenty of t- typical reality TV shenanigans around this show. And I think that's one of the reasons why it became so popular so quickly and so many people watched it, whether they are interested in matchmaking or not or found it sensational or not is like, it has a lot of the great reality TV tropes. And as I was watching it, I thought to myself, like, this is actually more honest about dating than almost any other dating show. Like 
And I think that maybe part of that also comes from the fact that while many people in America, particularly white people, didn't know that like this is common practice, it wasn't like married at first sight where you're like subjecting yourself to something completely ridiculous and like there's no chance, there's like very little chance that it'll work out. But they're actually just sort of for many of the people who participated, I think just documenting a, a common custom and just bringing it to a, an audience. And I guess one thing I wanted to talk to you about is how the show is perceived in the U.S. versus how it's perceived in India. And one thing about Netflix is that they have a global audience. And so I think they've, I think with their reality TV programming in particular, they really understand how they can export these shows or um, have them in multiple markets. And so I think it's really interesting to consider how a show is received here versus in in India. And, and there's just like a lot in there. So what is the difference there? Yeah. So just, I, I just want to give you a little bit of background. So great. Is, I'd love know, that. So India has, I mean, India is sort of a subcontinental nature, you know, yeah. 1.35 it's huge. it's huge. It's got lots of states, lots of different languages, lots of religions, and of course, caste. Uh, so it is a particular sliver of India, which is portrayed in the television show. So it's very upper caste, mostly North Indian language speaking, like, you know, Hindi, Sindhi, those kinds of languages, and clearly very well-off people. Right. Sort of like the 1% of India and the Indian diaspora. So it it it's sort of like a slice of India, which is not to say it doesn't represent that slice well, but it's hard to say it represents India as a whole, but that would be true of any television show. Sure. You, know, you make a documentary about a different cast, and I would say the exact same thing. I thought that a lot about Tiger King when Tiger King came out. And I was like, people who are watching this who aren't that familiar with American culture elsewhere if they think that this is what america is like that's very misleading but i do think there's a tendency to overgeneralize when you see a show that's like based somewhere else you're like oh this is what this country is like but obviously india is far from a monolith it's like one of the most varied countries yeah so that's that's sort of like i would just put that out there and i would say that for any indian tv show but the other part of it is uh i think the most interesting thing about the show is in india for the most part, in arranged marriages, people aren't that concerned about, you know, are you falling in love? Do you have chemistry? How do you feel? Do you feel a connection? These are typically issues of a love match, right? And those two groups are segregated in India. People in India will routinely ask you, did you have a love marriage or an arranged marriage? That's a, such a bizarre question because even people who met through a matchmaker presumably love one another once they are married. Right. But that's the way the question is phrased. Like, how did you meet? And the implicit assumption is if the marriage were arranged by family or, you know, uh, an extended family set up, then the parameters of choice are slightly different they're going to look for compatibility on different margins, such as are they the same caste? Do they speak the same language? Is the family's diet similar to ours, which is also taken care of mm. by caste and language and region? And, you know, are they the same socioeconomic class? Will we fit well as a group? So it's not so much about boy meets girl and they feel chemistry and connection. So it's more about the family. And what is really interesting about the show, I believe in the format in which it sets it up is it takes that idea and it clashes it with the modern romantic notion of there's a soulmate for each person and it's a question of meeting them and dating and, you know, finding that initial chemistry and intimacy and falling in love. And a lot of the conflict in the show is around that, right? right. Seema is constantly telling people, you can't be picky, you need to be more flexible, you need to be more open-minded because she doesn't think that the connection is that important. 
whereas all the feedback that she's getting from the from the individuals who are in the processes i didn't feel it right you know i don't yeah. know if if this person gets me i don't know if i can open up to them so it's a that's i think the most interesting part of the conflict and i think the the sliver of society that the show is dealing with the very elite educated indians who are rich who watch netflix who are sort of like globally cosmopolitan they may struggle with these themes quite a bit because right. no matter what you do most marriages are arranged in india in the sense that the parents have to okay it it doesn't right. matter if you met at a bar but the parents have to have buy in into the match for the marriage to be successful that's the that's the perception is it common or at least like within some you know within like this 1% of american indian americans to use a an india or mumbai based matchmaker because i thought that was like i was like is this for the show or is this real it's not common but it's not unusual uh-huh. so what is more likely to happen is to reach out into extended family networks so you know all the indian americans will have some family connections back in india so you kind of call your siblings or your first cousins and you say hey i'm looking for a match for aparna or nadia or you know whoever and they'll say oh i know a great matchmaker or let me put the feelers out there or i know this great website which is now looking at niche matches between you know particular groups of you know sindhis or tamilians or you know particular caste particular region and that's usually how it goes so actually just you know contracting a matchmaker is a little less common but i think you know with globalization and sort of commodification of everything else i'm not surprised that there is a job like this and very rich people are willing to pay a lot of money for it who's paying seema's travel bills like who's paying for her to fly to the us that's a long flight and definitely not cheap That was my first question. I was like is Netflix paying for this no. or are the contestants paying for this? It was uh, yeah, that was definitely quite interesting. On like Below Deck and like on the home renovation shows on HGTV, the people who are going on the yacht or getting the renovation still have to pay for it. They might get like a, disc- a discount of some kind plus partic- presumably they they want to be on TV and are like fairly vain, so there's that bonus for them as well. But um <laughs> I I bet they still have to pay. I mean, I'm sure they have to still have to pay her plus she probably gets an appearance fee. and then i would i would guess that travel is like partially covered but i i don't know and that was the other thing about the show that like you had no sense of time like are, i was like are all yeah. these matches happening simultaneously and then when you, there was like kind of the reveal that when sima was recommending um the same men and women multiple times i was like oh interesting so this is like her stable of people and, and then it became more entrepreneurial for her in my opinion Well, that's both entrepreneurial but it's also very common because like I said in India you have to have a certain boxes checked, right? Once yeah. those boxes are checked, someone is a potential groom or a bride for the individual or the family. So when it comes to these kinds of matchmakers, they're not looking for one individual compatible with another individual as much as trying to get a bank of people who are somewhat similar and then you know you can have multiple areas where people are compatible so right. one area where seema is slightly different is that she is a much broader matchmaker than most indian matchmakers they would singularly focus on one group which is a subcast and a language and a region they would not be jet setting oh interesting so i i really want to talk about aparna aparna and uh nadia and just sort of the the dichotomy that i think was set up there but first i i think it'd be helpful to explain the caste system and i i definitely cannot i learned about it in school but i think um americans probably largely don't have a ton of familiarity with it um and so 
and I know it's also like literally centuries old. So to do a full history of the caste system would be very difficult. But could you give like an overview that helps frame this television and our conversation? Yeah. So the caste system is basically grouping uh, individuals within the society into different groups at birth right? And without any upward mobility whatsoever. So it originally started as more of a class system or a labor system, where people who followed certain occupations belonged to a particular class or caste. And over, say, 2000 years, it got fossilized into happening by birth, right? Got it. And that's sort of the original sin of the Indian subcontinent, the fact that your caste is assigned at birth, which means everything about you where you live, who you marry, what you eat, the language you speak, how the rest of society perceives you, occupations you are allowed and not allowed to take on, everything is determined by birth with little to no upward social mobility, right? And the only way out of this system in modern India is education. And uh, so typically within the caste system, there are four varnas, right? So there are four groupings. So this is Brahmins who are the priestly class, Kshatriyas who are the warrior class, Vaishyas who are the business class, and Shudras who do, you know, sort of the rest of the odd jobs in an economy. And the the other sin in all of this is there's a whole untouchable caste, which doesn't fit in these four large groupings. And they did things like, you know, they typically worked with, say, uh, you know, meat or uh, killing animals as, you know, uh, tanning leather, or they were doing other menial jobs like cleaning bathrooms and things like that. And these jobs became their caste with no exit option. And they got put together in a group called Untouchables. Now their self-chosen name is Dalit, which means oppressed uh, in Sanskrit. And so that's a large group. So just to put this in perspective, the number of Dalits in India today are 270 million. Right. Wow. So this is not a small group of people who've been oppressed. It's almost the population of the United States or thereabouts. So it's very large numbers of people who are trapped in a particular system. Now, the reason this is relevant to our discussion on the show is the way caste system is maintained is through marriage endogamy. When mm. I said there's no upward social mobility, now the caste system will very quickly dissolve because it's by birth if people married across caste lines. So the only way to keep this oppressive structure going is by insisting that people only marry within caste lines. And is and is that like a prevalent Absolutely. Got it. Not even prevalent. I mean, it is... So for the last <laughs> 70 years or so, only about 5% people in India have married outside caste, according to surveys, right? And this is a trend that has been incredibly stable, irrespective of increases in education in India, irrespective of modernization, irrespective of... India being more prosperous. So in a way that, you know, a lot of other regressive trends like, say, you know, child marriage and things like that have sort of disappeared or are reducing in prevalence with other good markers like education and uh, prosperity, the caste system seems to be incredibly stable. So only 5% marry outside caste. And that is true even for the very well-educated. So Nobel laureates, uh, you know, the recent Nobel laureates, Abhijit Banerjee and Esther Duflo, and uh, their co-authors, um, Maitrej Ghatak and La Fortune, the four of them uh, got together and they wrote this great study where they look in matrimonial ads in newspapers, right? So, you know, the way people yeah. buy and say. So they sure. looked at these matrimonial ads and they said, we want to track how many responses people got to these ads. So they both look at the ads that a family has placed in a, in a Bengali newspaper and the 
responses and how many of the responses the family actually pursued. So they see the entire choice set or set of options and also what they chose. And they find that caste is extremely stable, right? Uh, to marry within caste. So it's not even a matter of upward or downward mobility. So people are not excited to marry above their caste either. So it's really marrying within the group, which is so persistent and so prevalent. And their study was in an urban area. The newspaper was mostly read by middle-class, well-off, mm-hmm. you know, educated Bengalis. And even among them, it's an extremely persistent trend. Is it gauche to ask people what caste you are? Like when when she gives like the bio data and it has like all this information. Like I think to an American, to me, I'm like, well, this is sensational. Like people judge you in some parts of this country if you're like, where'd you go to college? Like if you're like sizing them up based on where they went to college, what their parents do. Like if you're trying to like ascertain someone's class, I think that is seen as like very snobby and snooty. It's the kind of thing that would happen on like Gossip Girl, you know? And it's like, it's been dramatized on many soap operas, many of which I enjoy. And so I, I think that's another reason why the show is like really, I think kind of like caught the attention of Americans who aren't that familiar with this culture is because you're just like, oh, yeah, they're just talking about this like out in the open. Like this is not how, this is not how we do it here. Well, you don't even have to talk about it. People can guess your caste by your last name, by the dialect with which you speak, or the address where you live, or the food that you eat. Are you a meat eater? Are you a beef eater? Did you grow up in the slums? So caste kind of dominates every aspect of one's life in India, especially in the non-urban, non-elite areas. And so it doesn't even have to be explicitly asked. Got it. I think it's explicitly asked in this particular show because a lot of these people are, you know, a couple of generations removed from India, especially people like Nadia, right? You know, the family left India many generations ago. So sometimes it's more explicitly asked and it's also asked in an elite setup if the caste is preferred, like, would you prefer someone of the same caste or is it mandatory? Right. That is, we will not consider anyone outside caste. So that's the reason it's asked for. So it's not at all, you know, politically incorrect or crass to ask about it, especially in a marriage context. In fact, in a marriage context, if your matchmaker didn't check about your caste preferences, they're not doing a very good job. They'd get fired. Interesting. <laughs> so they, they'd be out. Yeah. So I think that like that is just so different than American dating where like you're I think on a lot of like dating shows, like if you compare it to like dating around, you know, um, people ask a lot of sort of like bigger questions, like what, and and this happens on the show too, but it's secondary to the bio data where it's like, what do you like to do for fun? Or what are your hobbies? Or like, where do you see yourself in 10 years? Like the kind of like bigger questions that speak to like anything is possible and like less of like a circumscribed, like profile, I think are prioritized on America on American dating shows. Whereas this definitely something that I was like scandalized by. I was like, wow, they're just putting it all out there. You know, like it's just something that I think the American dating shows like shy away from. And like, you're not supposed to like ask about those things on your first or second date. Absolutely. But there's still a fair bit of marriage endogamy, even in America. Like college graduates tend to call married college graduates. There isn't that much religious endogamy, say, between Catholics and Protestants and Christians. But there is between, say, Christians and the Jews. Right? Sure. I'm, so, about to say, I'm, so, I'm I'm Jewish and I grew up with a lot of Jewish friends, like many. And I think a lot of us like just were like taught to marry to marry Jews. Many did not, and you know, many will not, but I think that's like something you're taught, like when you from in Judaism and I think uh Indian Americans have a lot in common. 
but yeah, yeah, that's definitely true. I think this is more about, and, and not to say that there's like some kind of really progressive marriage culture here in America, because there's not, but, but I, I just think the language of it is really oh, different. Absolutely. And and yeah. that's, and that's one of the reasons why this show, I think kind of caught a lot of people's attention and it felt like, like you're getting, um, I, I think a lot of reality shows are successful and they feel voyeuristic in a way. And I think that this felt to, to a untrained audience to be like voyeurism in some way. And like, it's like kind of crazy. I mean, the Jersey shore was similar, you know, like shows that expose you to a new culture that you feel like maybe you had would never get a window into otherwise like there's like a rush that comes with watching it yeah i mean there is voyeurism both in terms of the culture but i think one of the things that maybe many people connect with on this show is at the end of the day irrespective of culture everyone seems to be looking for the same things right whether it's aparna or whether it's anyone else on another dating show you're looking for intimacy you're looking for a connection you're looking for chemistry and she's looking for someone who will sort of prioritize her. her life and career yeah. and travel so it's in one sense it's a little bit universal what everyone seems to look for in a match totally. and in one sense there's this voyeuristic element of oh there are face readers and astrologers and like there are lots of astrologers i haven't seen face readers much so that's definitely one of the exotic indian things that they threw into the show i don't know too many people who do face reading a lot of palm reading but not face reading for for matches so there are some some voyeuristic exotic indian elements like that This episode is brought to you by Blue Apron. Home cooking matters now more than ever. With Blue Apron, you can have peace of mind by getting fresh quality ingredients delivered straight to your door so you can cook delicious, easy meals in the comfort of home. Blue Apron takes the guesswork out of dinner, and we mean more than just deciding what to eat. You can know your ingredients are being prepared and packaged with the highest attention to quality and safety. Create a plan that works for you with Blue Apron's ever-changing mix of menu options, like vegetarian, carb-conscious, Mediterranean, diabetes-friendly, and WW-approved. Prices start as low as $7.49 per serving, and you can schedule, skip, or cancel orders whenever you want. Don't sacrifice flavor. Don't settle for boring meals. Find comfort in the kitchen with Blue Apron and enjoy delicious home-cooked meals. Check out this week's menu and get $30 off across your first two deliveries when you visit blueapron.com slash bachelor. That's blueapron.com slash bachelor. Feed your soul. Let's get into some of the controversial stuff that's that's come up. Um, first of all, I just want to say, before we do that, to your point, I thought that Nadia crying about all of her friends moving on to a new phase and her her feeling stuck. It's like one of the most honest things I think I've ever seen on television. Absolutely. Like so many people feel that way. I think that like it's a thing that particularly women go through because like the phases of marriage and having children, having children and whatnot. And I, I, I thought that was like a really special moment. And that's one of the reasons why I was sad for her to go. I just felt like she was really honest. And I also just thought the her um, Guyanese background was like really fascinating. And seeing her negotiate that and like talk about her own identity as having Indian ancestry, but um, being Guyanese and being obviously she's American. Um, I just thought it was really, really great. And I thought that was like a, a very memorable moment to me that I think just so many people can relate to. And whether you're a different life phase, I just think that's like one of the hardest parts of adulthood is like not being on the same track or like timeline as all of your friends when, when um, particularly here in the States, like you, there's like benchmarks that everyone hits together, like Absolutely. middle school, high school, college graduation, first job, like things like that. So then you all go on your own timeline and here's Nadia struggling with it. It's like Nadia who amongst us has not struggled with that, you know? 
Yeah, that I one I I felt terrible for her both moments when she cried. You know, one was sort yeah. of when she thought she was feeling left behind, and the other was when she got stood up, or or so it it said on the show. Uh, but I think the interesting thing about Nadia, and there's some subtext here, is when Seema meets her, she says, "Oh, you're Guyanese, and you know you're not going to have too many options. Right. You've got to be flexible." And subtext is. Uh, typically, all the families who went to Guyana about, you know, early 19th century, which is also when Nadia's ancestors went there, there was a lot of indentured labor that was shipped from India to the New World, you know, to the Caribbean, to South America. And they were typically perceived as low caste, you know, in quotations, mm. right? Uh, or And caste never leaves, right? Despite generations of ancestry. So when Seema says you're going to have fewer options, it's kind of shocking to an American because she is so beautiful. She's vivacious. She's open. You know, she has a career. She's lovely. And she come across as a warm person. But the reason is none of those things really matter in the Indian arranged marriage market, right? How many people are seriously going to consider someone who's not just foreign born, but perceived to be from a lower caste, right? right? And her markers, her education, the fact that she's American and elite just don't uh, are not very compatible with the origins of her caste in one sense. Sure. That's the reason it's slim pickings for her. So it's just I felt the most for Nadia because I thought she should be on Bumble or you know she's, some yeah. other website. She should not <laughs> be in Indian arranged marriage matchmaking. It's just it's not the ideal market for her. Totally. I totally agree with that. And I think that's a good transition into this question of colorism that particularly comes up with Risha at the end. She's closer to the end of the season. And she specifically says she wants to marry someone. Um, I believe her quote is not too dark, you know, like fair skinned. Yes. And um, I guess, you know, it would be also helpful, much like you explained the caste system, 2000 years of social order in in a short period of time, maybe just sort of like a a brief overview of how colorism also pervades the conversation in modern India and just sort of um, the culture that the show is touching on. So colorism is really big. Some of it is associated with caste and race. You know, lower castes were always typically depicted in darker colors. And uh, because, you know, they do a lot of manual labor, they also tend to have a darker skin tone just out of those occupations. Higher castes, irrespective of what color they actually are, you know, when they're photographed, are always described as fair skinned and things like that. Even in Indian mythology, you would rarely come across a god or an important good character who is depicted dark, right? Mm -hmm. All the good guys are usually depicted fair. All the bad guys, the demons are depicted dark. And this is just a a trope in Indian culture where dark is bad. And in so many cultures. Yeah. I mean, again, it's not, it's not like America is free of colorism. It's far, far from it. So absolutely. And India is quite, so one part of colorism comes from caste. The other part just comes from colonialism. Mm -hmm. Right. The idea of the white man having the power and the authority and you sort of looking up to them and that being the standard of morality, that being the standard of beauty or, you know, good behavior or success has really crept into India. It's in its bones. Right. So no one thinks it's politically incorrect. So recently, uh, you know, Unilever in India changed the name of the product of one of its largest selling consumer goods, which is a fairness cream. And it used to be called fair and lovely, right? And that people didn't think that was a problem. There are people in recent years who have kind of protested against the use of fair and lovely, you know, propagating a particular culture of 
beauty standards and colorism. Uh, but it's only in this moment that they finally decided to change the name to Glow and Lovely, right? Mm-hmm. From Fair and Lovely. But the essence of the product hasn't changed. It sure. makes you fairer. So there is a bit, you know, so we're becoming more politically correct, but I'm not sure if we're becoming more progressive necessarily. So sure. colorism has this deep history. And in the marriage market, you know, once again, so there's a difference, right? When you are looking to make a connection based on love and chemistry of two individuals and maximize their happiness, their idiosyncratic preferences, right? Aparna's need to travel uh, or, you know, someone else's need, like Ankita's need for someone to understand her business. Those are the characteristics that are important. Now, if you go into an arranged family system, then the individual characteristics are really not that important. It's the big boxes, right? So it's more like a commodity market. Right. So if you read someone like Nobel laureate Alvin Roth on this, uh, you know, who's talked about all the matching markets and that's that's what he won his Nobel Prize for. He talks about how commodity exchanges are essentially different. Right. Mm-hmm. You you grade uh, wheat and uh, coffee beans and things like that into different batches. And once you know what batch it is, you know what price to pay. And every grain within that batch is substitutable. Right. Okay. So okay. it's a little bit similar. So if you're a particular caste, a particular social economic background, you're, you know, not too slim, not too dark. You're a particular height because the girls must be shorter than the men in the Indian marriage market. Right. If you follow some of these markers and they manage to get you a list of, say, six girls at the end of the day, from the arranged marriage perspective, all six are substitutes of one another. Right. So yeah. it's colorism, which enables this kind of commodification, which is you know, it makes the problem somehow doubly worse when it enters the marriage market, as opposed to when there is just, say, colorism, you know, um, plain and simple. And I think that kind of gets at the heart of the critiques of the show, aside from Aparna, who we still have to talk about. But it gets at, I think, the one of the bigger critiques, which I definitely think is true, where it lends itself to like a feeling to a a sense of um, fetishization of like everyone on the show. And so, you know, here I am asking all these questions about Indian culture. And it's like, I have like just a couple of examples that I'm asking this off of. Although, I mean, it's not like I've never met an Indian or an Indian American person before. But nonetheless, you know, when you're kind of exposed to a culture for this first time in this way, it these people become like representative and you extrapolate and like make all these judgments about like what a culture might be like. And as you already explained, like this is representative of a tiny sliver of Indians and Indian Americans. And so... And and all the other parts of the Indian diaspora, which also I think probably a lot of people learned about as a result of Nadia being like, yeah, I'm Guyanese. So I think that like that is sort of um, the the fact that that was sort of just said sort of rather cavalierly and just kind of like off the cuff with with that broader context of like uh, that we're now diving into kind of makes it problematic on the show. And that's kind of like why it caught up a lot of people's attention. So that's the part which... I think uh, so. I think there's a lot of merit in that it it has a cavalier attitude towards it. But I'll tell you where I think the criticism of the show is maybe a little bit overboard. It's not that Indian people are not like that, uh-huh. right? So there is a lot of colorism. There is a lot of casteism, right? And this is what this is what you wrote in Bloomberg, basically, which is and I and I and also there was a really good article um, in Vulture by a woman named Malika Rao who's made a sort of similar point that like unfortunately. This, these are like beliefs that people have. And so it's just sort of being put on front street. Yeah. And I think a lot of the anger comes from the fact that, hey, you are the elite, educated, progressive people. You ought to know better. 
right? right? I think it's also coming from that place. And I don't know how fair that judgment is because sometimes these things are just very hard to shake off. Sure. And yes, it would be great if all the showrunners and all the participants in every show are just really progressive and responsible uh, on these margins. But then I don't think they would be honest. You know, like you said, some aspects of the show were just so honest, right? Aparna's mom dissing Srini and calling him a loser because he's <laughs> not as educated and, you know, ambitious and doesn't have the same earning capacity. It's awful, but it's honest. Sure. Right? Yeah. And and the same with a lot of the other, you know, I, I just want someone who is fair and I want someone who's slim and tall. If we washed over that, uh, I don't know if the show would be what it would be. So that's, I think, a conundrum. Right. And I guess it's it's good that some people outrage about these things. I think, you know, it's, it's, yeah, it's the worst thing to get that kind of conversation going about any cultural moment, uh, you know, arranged marriage or not. Totally. And so Aparna became the um, villain of the show. I'm on team Aparna, by the way. I'm not really sure why. Does she seem fun? Not really. Am I dying to hang out with her? No. She seemed really honest, though. And she just seems like someone that many people of her class, you know, educated, professional, you know, but would know. Like, she's like, yeah, I want to go to Bolivia and check out the salt flats. I want to travel all the time. Like, I actually think that, like, she is a very common type of like a college graduate professional in the U S who like puts a lot of value in travel and sort of like, you know, it's kind of part of that kind of Instagram life of like showing off where you are and whatnot. So she was just like incredibly common. And I also think that a lot of people who are sick of dating do stuff like her, where they're like, this is where I go 60 minutes and out. This is, this is my trick. Like blah, blah, blah. I thought she was super familiar. Um, one of my colleagues, Alison Herman, wrote a piece in defense of her on the ringer that you should check out. And I'd love to read that. I'm on her side too. Like she, she, uh, I don't think she seems that fun, but like, that's fine. Not everyone's that fun. And she just has the bravery to do it on television. So I think a couple of things. So one, I think, you know, the show might have stereotyped her as the unlikable one a little Mm -hmm. bit on purpose because they need tropes and stereotypes you know you need the Nadia versus yeah, the Aparna exactly and I think she's, Nadia. yeah I think she's come out and said that you know she was the edits made her seem a little less likable uh, but having said that I do think that one of the areas where I really felt for Aparna was when I was in law school the number of like well-meaning Indian aunties who came and told me, oh, no one will marry a lawyer. You know, they're very argumentative. This was when I was 22 years old. I was not looking for marriage. There was no conversation. There was no matchmaker. There was nothing. But people would just unsolicited come and say stuff like that to you. So I think many women like her who are of Indian origin, who work really long hours, who are very successful, who like their job, who are relatively uncompromising about those positions, I think they just look and sound a little bit more defensive. I think that's the sort of armor they wear because they just want to put it out there because they've been critiqued for it so many times. Now, I don't know if that's the case with Aparna specifically, but that's the case with so many of, you know, the women I know who are really well-educated, who make lots of money, who are not apologetic about it, who like to travel to Bolivia. And then they're told that, hey, these are not the things that are important in life. You should be flexible. You should work fewer hours. The man should make more money than you and, you know, so on and so forth. So I really felt for her on that margin. I might want to hang out with her. I don't know if you noticed this, but she was different with her friends. Yes. 
she had a lot of friends. She had more friends than than Nadia, which I just want to say it's not one to one. I like them both. I, I Nadia, I just like I really adored. Like them both, but having a lot of friends usually a good sign, you know. I know. And the friends were they kept her honest, you know. Yeah, they were kind of a sure. fun group of gals. So I yeah. wouldn't mind hanging out with them. Her mom was tough. Can you blame her? I mean, you know, also I just want to note, I also agree that I think relationships are more difficult when the woman makes more money. I think there's like a lot, a lot of evidence towards that. So that's not completely off base. Like, you know, there's, and and maybe that's not true in all cultures, but I think in, you know, a partner is American. I think that is true here. So I agree. And the attitude in India is not that, Hey, you make a lot of money. You're very successful. Let's try and find a match for you. Who is all of those things. It's usually, at least in my experience, it was like, why are you studying so much? It's going to be so hard to find a man who's more qualified because I got my law degree and then got a PhD in economics. And throughout my PhD, this is all that the Indian auntie said to me, oh my God, if you keep studying, how are we going to find a boy for you who's more educated than you? Uh, eventually I found a boy who doesn't have as many advanced degrees, but it was just fine, <laughs> you know, but that's sort of the attitude of, of the Indian system yeah. that the woman has to be the lesser. Not because it might be easier or for, you know, reasons of taking a break or, you know, childbearing years and things like that. Just because culturally, it's going to be very problematic if the woman is taller or the woman makes more money or the woman is more educated and so on. Sure, totally. And that's, I think, unfortunately, there is some truth to that, though. You know, like, I think, I think that, like, and that's one of the other reasons why I think the show is good. And like, for all of the controversy it stirred, the conversation it provoked. I do think there's like a lot of honesty in it that like yeah. is actually hard to say outside of some of this, some of the structures of the show, which it's kind of like really fascinating. Right. But, and, and I don't know, it's just a fascinating show. And I think that there's just been a lot of really smart writing about it, which makes you, which just means it's, it's hit a nerve. Right. And yeah, it's, it's something many people think they are too scared to say it because it's, you know, very un PC to say it. Yeah. But here in another cultural context, you just put it all out there. Yeah. And a lot of people are still thinking it. So yeah. in that sense, I agree with you. It's very honest, right? And it's, uh, in one sense, it's very honest about how people actually approach the marriage market irrespective of where they are. In another sense, it's not honest enough about the kind of deep, regressive, uh, sort of, you know, social values we have in India for a very, very large population. So it's a little bit of both. Yeah. And, and it just sort of makes me think about all the rom-coms that I love and how a lot of them contain these tropes, but are way less honest and even including that, like the happy ending, which is often not representative of like an actually dynamic relationship or marriage or the road to get there. It's not fast. It's not, doesn't start with a meet cute and end with, you know, meeting at the park with uh, your dog, a la You've Got Mail. So I know from your neighborhood. <laughs> yeah, this exactly. is right around the corner from where you grew up. Yeah, exactly. And I used to go to that when I was a child. I used to go to the playground right there too. So um, this has really been an awesome conversation and so illuminating. If you'd like to hear more from Shruti, you can check out our podcast launching this week called Ideas in India, correct? Yes, Ideas of India. It's available on all the usual platforms for free and it's produced by the Mercatus Center. And Julia, this was such a pleasure. You made me think so much about the show in different dimensions. It was a <laughs> lot of fun. I'm going to tune into more of your shows and watch more TV now. <laughs> and I'll well, watch this- Never Have I Ever and I'll write back. Yes, please do. Thanks so much for joining me and I'll be back on Monday for a Bachelor Conversation TBD. Talk to you then. 